Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. So for Mother's Day weekend, I wanted to interview a mom who we could relate to on many levels. So I thought about it and I chose one of Skirt Sports Ambassadors, LaToya Snell. What I found during the interview is that she's so much more than a mom we can all relate to. So LaToya is the real deal. She's 32-year-old mom of a nine-year-old boy who was recently diagnosed with a lifelong disease, type 1 diabetes. She's a woman who has gone through and is overcoming personal issues from health to work to self-confidence. She is outspoken. She's hilarious. She's wise. She's humble. She has multiple identities, which you'll notice when you start checking her out online, which you're going to have to do after the show. She has an awesome, real, entertaining blog called Running Fat Chef, and she's also a professional photographer, and she's also an endurance athlete. Uh, Most recently, she shares the story of her Spartan Ultra Beast experience, which is one of the reasons that I knew I needed to have her on the show. Um, But before I bring her on, I want to talk to you about something else that's really cool. Skirt Sports. <laughs> so it's fitting that I launch an ongoing promotion for the brand that I started with this episode because Latoya's an ambassador and Skirt Sports is what brought her and I together. So here's the deal. In 2004, I won the Ironman Wisconsin wearing a prototype of a running skirt. I was a professional triathlete that time, and I wanted something cute that also performed. And winning an Ironman in a skirt definitely legitimized it. Um, People thought I was crazy, but more people and more important people thought what I was wearing was awesome. I incorporated skirt sports three days after winning that Ironman and officially created a new category in women's running and activewear, the fitness skirt. So 12 years later, we're going strong. And Skirt Sports philosophy is to create a community that supports and inspires each other to live happier, healthier lives. That's what we really do. The clothing is simply part of the equation. It's like a byproduct. Yeah, it's how we got started, but we've evolved into so much more. So in order to help women find this happiness, we make great products that fit women's bodies how they should, regardless of their shape, their size, their age, or their level of fitness. So to help you get into our products, if you're not already a Skirt Sports fan, I'm giving away a $50 gift certificate to Skirt Sports every quarter. All you have to do is get over to my Facebook page. It's my fan page. It's Nicole Molzon Boom. Click on the giveaway link and sign up. You can enter once each quarter and please share with your friends who love the podcast and everyone else you know for that matter. Okay, now back to the show. 
I think you will really love today's episode. I wanted more time. I wanted more time with La- with Latoya to learn more about her future goals and her per- personal health journey. But here's the deal. Latoya had to leave. She had to go pick up her son. And we'd already gone over 45 minutes. So we should have ended anyway. And you know what? Making sure that you get there to pick up your son on time, that's the most important thing now in- anyway. You know? We all know that. So with that... Let's bring her on. All right, are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Awesome. So, um, Latoya Snell, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so excited to dig in and get down and dirty for my Mother's Day edition of Run This World. Awesome. Um, So, here's the deal. Full disclosure, you are a skirt sports ambassador, and um, I, you came on board, what, this year, right? Yes, this year. Awesome. So, you know, we're not going to do the whole skirt sports pitch and make it a big deal, but I want everybody to know that because there is a little business connection here behind the scenes. But what really brought us together was that special thing that touches our body every day, our clothing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's, I think today we're going to have a blast and we're going to talk a lot about bodies and movement and all that good stuff. But, you know, I really want, you're such an interesting person and you're doing some really cool things in this world. I really want to paint a picture for people before we dig into what those cool things are about where you came from and how, how you got to the place that you are where you have this incredible business and you're you're a photographer and you have running fat chef and uh, you're an ambassador for other brands and you're doing cool things in the world. So let's do that. Let's dig in and paint that picture. So let's start with like your background. Where'd you grow up? What was your family like? Oh man. Uh, Wow. Um, Well, pretty much right now I'm going to be 32 next month. Um, I started back in 2000. 13 with the running adventures which i never ever would have saw myself doing this if anything if you would have asked me about five or six years ago i would have said to you the only thing that i would ever run for would be the ice cream truck which i literally did when i was pregnant and heels and then it got to a point where the ice cream man literally came to my door every day so i wouldn't run seven months pregnant Perfect. But, yeah, the, I've been born and raised here in Brooklyn, New York. I'm from Bedford-Stuyvesant, parts of Crown Heights, um, the place that pretty much got like a bad, uh, I want to say a bad stigma at one point, but now is one of the most expensive neighborhoods in probably of the United States, at least on the East Coast. Um, and are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Still nice. Here. You take advantage of that uh, real estate market. Oh. Oh, yeah. It's weird actually looking at the transformation over the last, even just, I'd rather actually say in the last 10 years of watching the neighborhood that everybody was so terrified to actually walk into to now it's like one of the booming neighborhoods where literally just to get a cubicle of an apartment is about $1,100, $1,200. I wish it was an exaggerated number. It's you know, it's beautiful and sad at the same time. You know, because, you know, this is you know, the economy, you know, is not the best. 
at this moment, it could improve. It could be way better. But I love seeing the culture. I love seeing the different backgrounds and the different, the interesting people that I get to meet from the East Coast, the West Coast, across the country. But so was it like that when you were growing up? Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> mostly in this neighborhood, it was mostly black and Latino. Um, and it was it was very, I would like to say that the one thing I do have a bit of nostalgia for was the sense of community. Um, regardless of how terrible this neighborhood may have been at one point, I felt like I knew my neighbors a little bit more. Um, I'm a very social person. I'm very extroverted. Um, I have introverted moments at times, but mostly extroverted. And I was used to being able to have that feel where if I looked at my neighbor and I got in trouble, the entire neighborhood knew, which wasn't the best thing when you're growing up and you're doing something wrong, because I got myself into a lot of trouble as a kid. But it was always that sense of safety, at least in your head. You always had that sense of safety where, the, where if your parent wasn't home, you knew you can go to your neighbor's house. I used to have people that came to my house. I grew up in Kingsborough Projects, and that's what I like to call it, Kingsborough Projects. Um, it's a development that's in Crown Heights. And over there, I remember growing up over there, and I had friends who were too ashamed to actually say they didn't eat. And we didn't have, my mom and dad, they tried their best um, with trying to raise me and my little sister. And there were times where we would take our small portions of whatever we had and we would share it with my friends, even people that my dad would curse out because unfortunately I have my potty mouth syndrome from him. <laughs> <laughs> very, oh, very we love that about you. Yeah, it's very, very colorful, you know, dumb. but it takes a lot to really get me there. But, um, you know, with him, it was like he was one of those people that he can curse you out one minute and the next minute he's making a, like a peace treaty with you through food, which is how I found myself freelancing in the culinary aspect and kind of infusing the photography with it. But wow. Well, let me let me ask you about safety. So you mentioned that it was probably not seen as the most incredibly safe neighborhood, but you felt a sense of safety. I think that's so interesting. Yes. Like, yeah. would you have gone running in your old neighborhood when you were growing up there and felt safe? No. <laughs> Got it. But could you go running in the neighborhood that it's become today? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Unfortunately, as a woman, I do get the um, the cat calls, um, which can be really annoying um, to this day. But it's not to a point where I'm nervous of, running past a certain hour, you know, it's almost like, I hate to say it, it's like a, it's like a cultural thing. Like it's kind of like one of those things of growing up in a black community. It's like, okay, when the lights go out, you have to go back in, and, you know, and it was that sense of understanding of don't cross this far unless I can see you in my, you know, peripheral vision. If I can't see you, that means you're too far. And it was that ha ha, but it wasn't, it's like an undertone of knowing how serious that meant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you mentioned your parents did what they could to instill, you know, strength and values in you. What what are the most important things that they instilled in you? Or or even if you had a, a story from your childhood that had a formative effect on you? Oh, man, I have a whole bunch of stories, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, some of them very good, some of them, you know, kind of sad. Um, but the main things that my... I would love to say my father more than anything. He really pushed us was family first. Um, be true to self. 
is something that I live by to this day. And at one point I didn't understand it. And I want to say that I kind of lost my path because you get so caught up, especially growing up, you know, as a teenager, you start to look at what other people have and you get so caught up in looking at what everybody else have, or at least the perception of what you think that everyone has, that you sometimes long for something that is kind of artificial, you know, and then once you have it, you're like, I don't understand what the hype was. Uh, so my, my father always told me, regardless of how much you have or how little you have, make the best of it. You know, sometimes, you know, sometimes we're provided so many things that we don't value it or we don't have a sense of respect for it. You know, where you're like, oh, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can pick up this. And it's almost like a sense of not earning it. Or a sense of, I can just get it whenever I feel like it. Versus someone who may have little and they can make it go a long way. And there's a beauty to it. It's a very raw beauty to it. And that was something that my father really drove in for not only for my, my sister and I, but for my mom as well. Can you, yeah. give, can you give me an example? Um. Well, we came across hard times. Um, at first, we actually lived in a, a section of East New York. And we eventually end up moving to my grandmother's house um, when she was alive. Um, and this was like in 1989, 1990. I was, my sister wasn't born around this time. My sister and I are about five and a half years apart. Um, and 1990 is when she was born. I, in turn, we lived in a senior citizen building. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was five years old and I remember my view was Saratoga Park. Um, it was this small playground um it was an area of like bushwick kind of like borderline bedside and um my grandmother passed away um that's so she actually passed away on my birthday um and for some reason i had it in my head that i killed my grandmother because i was sick and she died of pneumonia and i was like well if i wasn't sick then maybe you know this wouldn't have happened but you know it's hard to explain that to a five-year-old mind that it's not your fault and that things do happen. Um, and we tried to, my mom and my dad, they did their best to kind of maintain the apartment and try to hold on to it. Um, and at the time, you know, back in 1990, oh God, the, the rent was dirt cheap compared to what it is now. But even with them doing their best, we were in the process of getting evicted. And by this point, this was 1992. I remember standing in court with my dad, we ended up, ended up taking the day off of school um, because we weren't sure what the situation would be. And we stood in the housing court and we all held hands. And he's like, regardless of what happens, we stick through this together. Wherever we go, we're still a family. That doesn't change who we are. It doesn't define who we are. We're just going through a rough patch. And I think that was the, the message that my dad always made sure that we understood regardless of how bad it was, regardless if it meant that I was only going to have one or two meals that day. You know, there were days where we it was really good, you know, where I didn't have to worry about, oh, okay, well, make sure I eat all my lunch at school versus days where it was really rough, especially when it came close to the point where we were getting evicted, where we, we knew that my dad would go outside and he would do everything from cutting hair to working on construction sites to basically having like this hustler mentality to make sure that we ate, you know, wow. so, you know, I learned that from young, 
you know, and it's not, and I know my parents really didn't want me to see that or understand it, especially not at the age, at this time, I was at 1992, I was seven, and we literally got evicted, but um, the housing court um, assistant actually felt so bad about it, she held us inside of this this building essentially for six months until we were able to move into Crown Heights and she made sure that we had a transfer. And it was just from, I guess it was just a feeling, you know, that she felt like, you know, she, you know, you see so many people a day and I guess something that my dad said stuck out to her. And in turn, we ended up finding ourselves in Crown Heights and he always told us regardless of how bad it is, you just got to keep finding a way to smile. And it's something I take to this day. You know, I, uh, I, okay, so I just started crying over here, but you can't see me. <laughs> and I don't know what it was in your story that triggered that feeling, but I think it's just this feeling of no matter how hard it gets, you're not alone. And that's yes. what I also heard. And as a seven-year-old girl, I mean, that's an important message because you're about to enter this whole world that you alluded to where maybe you lost your path a little bit as you mentioned earlier, um, that, that makes you question who you are and makes you feel more alone. And gosh, I just love your dad. <laughs> My dad was very, like, it was, I don't know. It was like, he was a strange character. It was like Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. <laughs> yeah. It was like some days it's like, oh my God, I'm like, you know, he's, he's lovable. And it was some days he was just like, okay, the, it was just like F-bombs everywhere. And I'm like, oh crap. Okay. So I just messed up. So <laughs> he was a scary man, you know, at moments, but I love his morals. Um, he, you know, he's from down South. Um, he was from Mulberry, Florida and he came up here and he met my mom in like 1974 and they've been together up until the day that he passed away. And my mom is very introverted you know she's very much to herself and my dad was like this firecracker and the two of them together it was just i don't know it was beautiful calamity <laughs> oh i love that beautiful calamity um you know also what's coming out of this is this food the topic of food because you mentioned many times that you know, there were days you weren't sure how many meals you would eat. So there's something about food that was ingrained in you young. I mean, tell me about this relationship with food. Uh, yes, that that is essentially how I find myself here in this profession. Um, you know, one of the things that I told myself that I would never, ever, ever make if I actually got to, I never picture myself, actually, I consider myself at this point successful. Um, which somebody else might look at differently. They're like, oh, well, you're not rich or anything like that. For me, a sense of success would be the mental state right along with the physical state of not worrying. And that's where I find myself at this point today, where with my dad, regardless of what meal we had, um, we always made it, it was always like this way of us making them together. So he was one of these people that never had measurements. His measurements was, Curse word, curse word, curse word. <laughs> just put a little bit on this. You know, there was never like, you know, hey, one teaspoon of this. And he's just like, figure it out. You know, and he'll yell at you and say, oh, okay, now go wash this dish. And then he'll tell you not, you didn't make it clean enough. Or don't make, don't put any lumps in my grits. Or, <laughs> or anything of that nature. And if you did it wrong, then he'll slam the table. And, you know, you're like, oh, my God, I'm so nervous. But maybe it prepared me for culinary school. <laughs> <laughs> Cutthroat. But was your dad, he wasn't violent, was he? No, 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 no. He, he did have a temper. He had a serious temper. Um, you know, and at times it kind of scared me a little bit because uh, even I took it 
on as an adult. My sister is not so much high tempered, but I found myself being a young adult, being really snappy and edgy towards certain things. And it was a mixture of having it hard and not understanding and looking at, uh, I guess, the assessment of being caught out there of looking at everybody else thinking that they had it easier than I did. When we grew up, when it came to the food aspect, we literally ate chicken and dumplings for an entire year. And I was just so tired of this recipe. I'm like, okay, we had it yesterday. We had it the day before. You know, we had it the day before that. And he's like, I had the chicken and dumplings or nothing. You know, and it was there was special days where if he had a little bit of extra money, then he'll throw in things like corn or carrots or maybe we would make something different. But he... I recognized that we bonded. We had very interesting conversations and he always found a way to make it pleasurable. Regardless of how much my dad lacked tact and being blunt, my dad always found this way to kind of get us into the sense of togetherness, regardless of how rough it was. And that, that was really our bonding experience. The bonding experience was at the kitchen table. It was when we were washing dishes when it came down to the caring and understanding of the ingredients, how things balance. So when it came down to me finding myself as an adult, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, everybody kept telling me, don't do culinary school because you're not going to make any money. You know, and I, and I believed it, you know, if, um, for a, a good amount of time, I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't want to be broke, but all of the careers that I kept choosing, like I, I was considering being an accounting major and I was completely bored. I had this um, accounting professor at LaGuardia Community College, and he gave me this piece of advice, and he said, you're as good as the last thing you've ever done. And I was like, that's really harsh. And he's like, unfortunately, in this business, it's very cutthroat. You know, you can do all of these things, all these spectacular things, but sometimes people will remember you by the last thing that you've ever done to impact them. And he's like, for you, he's like, I recognize that you go to sleep in my class. He's like, for some reason, you, you manage to pass. You understand all the work, but you're not into this. This is not your passion. I can't tell you what to do, but you should go find your passion. And in turn, I tried going into social work. Um, and I love it. I love talking to people, but it was so draining. I couldn't find my balance. I found myself going through anxiety attacks. Um, I worked in the Department of Corrections and you see a little bit of everything. You hear some stories that's a little heartbreaking. And it just kept bringing me back to food. Because um, even when I saw the corrections meals, I'm like, who eats this? <laughs> you know, like, who? Then some of this stuff is not even up to standards. It's not up to code, you know. And I, I, just, I, I just kept finding myself going right back to food. Every time I kept thinking about when I invite friends over, it always was surrounded around the food. When it came down to... Happy moments, they came down to food. Now, unfortunately, that worked against me at one point. After I had my son, I started eating all of the wrong foods, which is how I ended up gaining a lot of weight. Like, I stopped counting at the 265 pounds. But I find that now I have a much healthier relationship with food, and I find myself with the blog being able to actually articulate as much. Absolutely. Wow. So your path is so circuitous. Like... Okay, so you went through, I, I assume, high school in New York, right? Yes. And then you graduate, and you're like, okay, I'm on to the next thing, so I'm going to become an accountant. Yes, I tried. <laughs> and then, but, but there was clearly no energy 
in, you know, really that wasn't going to go anywhere. It was just a thing to do, right? Maybe had you not put together your philosophy on success yet? Yeah, at that point, it was like, uh, when it comes, when I think back to high school, oh gosh, high school, make a long story short, I was not the best of students. It wasn't so much of the education factor. It was my focus. My focus was looking for, I guess um, a lot of teenagers go through it, where they're looking for a second home or a second family in a sense where you're rebelling against your parents and you don't think your parents understand or they can't relate. And in turn, I did everything under the sun where I was just, i you name it, I was the character in high school where they was like, oh yeah, if you want somebody beat up, just go to LaToya and you know give her like five bucks or give her a snicker bar and then she'll go over there she doesn't like bullies so that was what i was known as i was known <laughs> as the person that will beat up bullies like you couldn't come to me and tell me hey i don't like this person and then didn't give me an explanation <laughs> like it had- this is so awesome <laughs> <laughs> wow um so i mean did you get into like drugs and alcohol in high school most high schoolers do i'm just curious yeah, I had moments where I, I was trying to drink and oh gosh, something I learned very quickly that vodka is not a friend. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I try to smoke bud and marijuana. Um, it, thankfully, I didn't explore, like, experiment with other things. My dad also had a drug addiction. So that was enough for me to not want to indulge in anything beyond that. And I just thought, I started, for me, I, I think I had more of a fear of and I know this is going to probably sound weird. I had a fear of being intelligent. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was It was like one of those... It, it's, it's so weird to explain. Like, sometimes people are scared of their own success. And I happen to be one of those people. Uh, as To this day, I still struggle with the fear of my own success because I keep thinking, if I get this successful, then at some point I have to fall. Mm, that's a real... But it's... It's an unavoidable thing to ride the waves of of life and a path you're on. So I totally understand it. I mean, I've been there. I've watched my husband go through it. Um, and it's, I get it. So yeah. have you overcome that? <laughs> okay. uh, oh, I, I'm, I'm challenged by it every yeah. day, um, especially now with the, you know, the running and I mean, uh, you know, as it recently, you know, with the Spartan race, um, and which is why I named the the title of my my, la- my last blog that I actually wrote the success and the failure of the Spartan Ultra Beast, which was twenty six point four miles excluding the obstacles. And on that race, I told myself, "Yeah, I'm going to train really heavy." I wasn't even sure if I was going to sign up for it, and I was excited by the idea of, uh, ironically, the idea of possibly failing this. um i went into this knowing how difficult it was the statistics for the spartan ultra beast for anyone that's not aware um is literally anything is pretty much anything beyond the marathon distance so it's an automatic given that it's going to be over 26.2 miles in just the trail alone but then you have to include the obstacles which at my race was 64 obstacles or maybe 67 um and it's a is everything from leaping over ten inch walls to pulling up um, pulling up sands of um, like bag, bags of sand that's like a hundred pounds, and you're literally repeating this course twice, and there's a certain time limit. And for me, I started at seven o'clock, 
My time limit would have been 9.30 at night if I would have completed it. Unfortunately, there are certain things that you cannot train for and you cannot prepare for it. And for me, it was a sprained ankle within the first two miles because I'm from the city, you know, so there's not much hills here unless I go to like, you know, unless I want to run back and forth to the Bronx or I'll go to Staten Island. There's not much inclines here for me to actually practice with. So I use things like stair climbers and things or such or whatever. And I found myself at mile two feeling disappointed and overwhelmed. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that I already incurred an injury two miles in. And I have my buddy, um, my buddy Rain, who actually did this with me, who's never done a half marathon, never done a full marathon. He didn't even do a 10K. <laughs> he just he just went into this on impulse of, if you're doing it, I'm doing it. I don't want you to do this alone. He's a good friend. And I saw yes. pictures of him. He's very attractive. <laughs> you have very attractive friends. Um, so really quickly, let's talk about Spartan. I am actually uh, have plans to interview Joe DeSena, the Spartan founder, soon. So awesome. I want to go into this with some ammo because I've never done a Spartan race. And, you know, the average person looks probably looks at a Spartan event or any kind of obstacle event and says, I don't even know where to start. How do you even like, how would you even train for that? That's not a running race. Running races are hard enough to train for, but I mean, would I have to join a CrossFit gym? Do I have to find these? How do you, how do you get started? Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, with, I think more with the Spartan races as the distance gets harder, I think it's more of a mental game. And, you know, it's almost the thing is like, you don't like as a runner, if you're going to compare the running to obstacle course racing, you don't lose the mindset of a runner as a runner, you know, especially when you're doing the distance runnings versus like doing like sprints or whatever. Um, I would say with the endurance running, you realize that once you hit that half marathon point and beyond, most of this is just a mental game. Your mind will take you, you know, it will take your body wherever you desire it to go. Unless, you know, there's, there's a limit to it, you know, where maybe you have an accident or maybe your muscles actually give out or you're not fueling correctly. These things do matter. But when it comes to obstacle course racing, you want to also focus on your upper body. So even like, don't get me wrong, CrossFit would be excellent. If you, if someone is interested in a, a, a Spartan race, I would definitely encourage them to do a CrossFit. But someone like me, I'm on broke baller budget. <laughs> so I go to Blink or I'll go to Planet Fitness. Or if I don't want to go to a gym, I'll literally use the playground um, as my my training course. Uh, and basically, I'll work on my upper body. I think it's just the effort of trying and having that balance of having fun with it. You know, and it's something that we sometimes lose as adults. I think my child is a good reminder of how to actually stay in touch with my child's side because you, most of the time with the obstacle course racing, you're doing things like monkey bars. And you're like, when's the last time I've ever actually done this? There's some courses that actually have like a heavy rope and you're doing jump ropes with them. So there's, you know, some of the things are very simple, but then it gets intricate where it has box jumps. You might have to climb over, you know, you might have to actually go into the water. Like when the, in the, the distance events, you actually have to go through water and I can't swim. So it's a serious fear. I think a lot of this is really there to kind of break you and build you at the same time, because it's almost like you get the chance to look back at it. And yes, the metal was great. But the idea of knowing that I did that, that feeling is amazing. 
And wow. So give me, um, tell us a couple, tell us one cool story about either your training for or your Spartan event, or maybe even why you decided to call it quits. Like at what point and, and how did that play with your head? Oh yeah. Um, definitely the last race that was, that is in the four years that I've been doing this, that is hands down the hardest race mentally, physically, spiritually that I've ever done in my life. I came in that morning. We were already frantic. Uh, my friend Rain and I were really, really frantic because they gave us directions on the Spartan race, which you could tell him that um, Route 94 is not Route 94. <laughs> um, we, we were told to go to a certain parking lot to... Um, to pretty much park our car and then they would, we would take a shuttle bus to get to our wave on time. We took the directions being that we are not from Jersey. We were completely lost and we were frantic and I suffer from anxiety attacks. So my anxiety kicked in really bad in the car. So he's looking at me with one eye, like, please don't have an anxiety attack in the car. So I'm trying to calm down for him and he's trying to make sure that I'm calm. And we're mentally freaking out together. We're like, okay, we made it this far. We paid all this money that we couldn't afford to possibly not get into this race. We finally get there. Um, I finally get myself out of my head. We get excited. And then we looked at the map and we're like, holy crap, this is 64 obstacles. 64, 66 obstacles. And the race announcer reminds us at the beginning, they do it every race. It doesn't matter what distance it is. They'll tell you the statistics. And for this um, race in particular, there was a 29% success rate. And it says, look to the left, look to the right. One in five of you will not complete this race today. And we said to ourselves, let that not be us. And we went off into the track and... In those type of races, you have to get really comfortable with nature. You're going to see a lot of bugs. You might get a couple of bruises and bumps. Everything was fine until mile two. Um, the incline is, I think, honestly, look, thinking back at it, the hardest part of the race is the first four miles. Because if you're not used to the terrain or you're just not, if you, especially when you don't know what to expect, it seems like the hills are going up forever. <laughs> and we're like, wow, this feels so much harder than last year. Even though we never tackled um, or attempted doing an Ultra Beast, we did actually do this particular course before last year, and it was nowhere near as hard. And, you know, he kept asking me, he's like, you think we're going to make it through it? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it through it. And then five minutes later, boom, I twist my ankle. And he's like, oh, you're all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And he's watching me limp, and he's looking at me, and he knows that I'm lying. Like, I... I have this look on my face. I, I guess, the, according to him, he says that I get really short in my talking. Um, I'd stop answering questions as much, and it looks like I'm concentrating too hard. So he already knew something was wrong, but I'm like, there's no way I'm quitting. I'm like, it's just a sprained ankle. We have 14 hours outside. It'll be fine. We, I already did the math for it. I have to average around 33 to 35 minutes a mile. I'm going to be all right. And then, boom, number two. I, next thing I know, I... I, the same leg, I stopped feeling my toes around mile three and a half. And I'm like, okay, I don't care. I'm still going to go. Mentally, I'm stubborn. I was like, I don't care. I, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And the next thing I know, he tells me, hey, um, so my muscles are cramping, which that's usually a sign that you're dehydrated. Your sodium level is actually leaving and you should probably eat more food. He started experiencing it even more. 
Next thing I know, I'm tripping again because I can't really feel my toes, so it's making it really hard. We get up to mouth five, and at this point, I'm just angry with the entire world. Like <laughs> I, I really thought that I had it in my head that I'm going to fail. I was like, I'm not going to make it through it. And he looked at me and he kept asking me questions the entire time. Because the first race that we ever did, ever did together, we actually snapped at each other really bad. Or I, we started yelling at each other and cursing at each other, like in the middle of the water, because I'm freaking out that I'm in water. And he's freaking out because it's too cold. And I said some really harsh words to him um, somewhere along the line of calling him all different types of um, five letter words that you can um, use your imagination on. We're best friends. I have no idea how we made it through that day, but. Somehow we made up and we had a game plan of we will not kill each other on the course. Whatever happens, we will stick this through together. Um, and if one person couldn't make it, we would make sure that that person gets to the checkpoint and the other person will go on. So it's really good if you're going to do this in a team to have an understanding and a clear communication plan of if something bad happens, what are we going to do? Um, we got to mile eight and I just broke down and I cried. And I think that I needed that. I needed to really just get it off my chest. And he let me just break down. And he asked me again. He's like, do you think we're going to make it? And in my head, I was like, yeah, sure. We're going to make it. And, I, and my the other part of me was like, we're not going to make it through this course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my ankle was just, my ankle was starting to swell up. My, my, my toes, I really wasn't feeling the sensation. And you get this overwhelming feeling of, failure but the crying was really therapeutic for me because it gave me permission to say I can do as much as I can physically and when it gets to a point where I am possibly going to hurt myself even more that's when I need to throw in the towel there is no let's push through this and there is no mind over matter you have to know that balance um on my own Facebook page I literally I I, I went on my Facebook page and I asked a lot of my audience, hey, can you please give me like some positive words? Because I have every terrible thought that's coming to mind. And I got everything from threats from my family members because they're just as blunt and vulgar. Um, when they told me that my dad was going <laughs> to um, kick my ass. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> from the grave, you know, if I actually quit to very supportive things. And the one thing that stuck out to me is someone screenshot my cover photo where it has my Spartan races and I was, um, I was flexing for the, um, for the photo and it has all my Spartan races, um, medals up to date on my back. And the message that I put inside of that photo was, you know, people believe that, you know, that the mind over matter thing. And they think that, you know, that it's almost like to sum up the paraphrase myself is basically people believe mind over matter you know, pretty much resonate over everything. And I don't, I'm not one of those people that believe that. I believe that mind over matter, that your mind and your body has, is almost like a marriage. And some days it's going to be 50-50. Some days are going to be 70-30. Some days are going to be 80-20. Regardless, they're married. And, and, and at some point, if it's a successful marriage, it's going to find its balance. So one depends on the other. But when there's a time that you need to actually say, hey, listen, your mind and your body is saying that, hey, listen, this is realistically not possible. You have to know when to actually throw in that towel. And for me, it was at mile 11 when it got to a point where I'm looking over and he's in pain. And I know the only reason why he's pushing through it is because he doesn't want to fail me. And at the same time, I didn't want to fail him 
you know, bringing him this far to drive me out here to Jersey, you know, I just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I can be okay with this. This is not my first time actually DNFing out of a race, which is did not finish pretty much. Um, you know, leaving a race and saying, hey, I tried my best. That is the medal. The medal is not the physical, tangible thing that you're going to get on that course. The medal is really what's inside of really testing your limits, seeing how far you can take it. And then realistically, if you cannot do it, knowing when to actually say to yourself, I can actually do this another day. And that for me, this race taught me so much more about myself that I'm appreciative that I actually didn't complete it. You know, there are so many messages in this story of one single race. Um, that idea that you're scared of your own success because you may not, you may go down. Like this is the epitome of that, right? Yes. And you said when you're pulling up, you're like, wow, I might not succeed at this. And there's like some exhilaration that comes with that. And the fact that you learned so much from it, I mean, really, it feels like uh, relationships were forged. And the most important one was your relationship with you grew through that race. And yes. partly because someone threw some shit back at you that you had said before. Exactly. So it's reminding you of who you are, being true to self. I love this. You know, I think there's also... Um, there was something you said about the preparation and, and, you know, what you're doing out there and having uh, clear communication with the plan and all that, that reminded me of childbirth. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and I really do want to segue into, you know, y you are also a mom. You're an athlete. You're an adult onset athlete because you weren't an athlete growing up, right? No, uh, I mean, the closest that I got into, if you count um, fist fights in the locker room, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, it's so amazing. And then there was the chasing the ice cream truck when yes. you're pregnant, and then you had a beautiful boy. Yes. And so I, I assume you got married pretty young. You're still married, right? Yes, I am. Yep, uh, that's, that's impressive, let me just yes. say. He's a high school sweetheart. Uh, we met actually in the same high school. Um, we met and shoot, no, we met in, oh gosh, he's going to kill me for this. I think I met him in 1999. That's so terrible. Oh gosh. No, no, no. Okay. I'm going to correct myself. I met him in 2000 and he was a friend of mine and we got into a relationship in 2001 and he asked me out by getting on his knee, which freaked me out. Cause I'm like, uh, I'm 15. So you're not posing <laughs> to me, are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. He, you know, he, it was May 25th. He asked me out in 2001 and he's like, will you go out with me? And I was like, sure. You know, and that pretty much set the tone of our relationship. He's, his birthday is literally a day and a year apart. We're two Geminis and I have no idea of how that works, but it works. Um, and we pretty much knew early on because of my personal health issues that I had then that I would have a hard time actually having a child. So what and, were the, what were your personal health issues? Um, I have a, well, my, in my family history, we have a lot of issues with, um, fibroids. Um, in addition to that, my sister is diagnosed. She, um, she pretty much was diagnosed in 2001 with, um, lupus and her lupus affects her kidneys. It affects, um, a part of her brain. Um, at time it, it's a really terrible disease. Um, 
And in turn, it gave her rheumatoid arthritis. Unfortunately, in black, most black families, you know, you, you, you ask about health issues and it's like you're asking something that's taboo. So when I look back at my grandmother's pictures on my mom's side, when I think of the physical characteristics that my sister had, I can't help but think that maybe my grandmother actually had it too. Um, cause she did have an issue where it, um, where sometimes the lupus can, when it travels to your brain, it can actually cause a, a mental imbalance. And for a little bit, my grandmother actually was, you know, pretty much like admitted into a psych ward. So I sometimes wonder if maybe this was lupus related because she has what we call the, the moon face. It's something that people identify as like a facial trait or the butterfly mark. Um, it's like a reddish spot um, that occurs on your cheeks and sometimes down the middle of your face. And it looks like, I guess, symbolically, like a butterfly. And this is kind of like the way that sometimes you can identify people who have lupus. Um, so knowing these things that were kind of held against me, um, plus I, I had miscarried a couple of times. Um, I miscarried two times um, while being with my husband, um, like when I was like 20. I was just convinced that I wasn't going to be able to have kids. And I was like, oh, okay, you know what? I was like, I give up. We're not going. We're not going to be able to have kids and yada yada yada. And next thing I know, I'm pregnant. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And the entire pregnancy, they put me down as high risk. They found out within two months of me being pregnant with my son that I had a condition called placenta previa, which means that there's no way for the baby to come out. You go through an entire pregnancy where you can possibly bleed. You can spot. Um, which I did every month until like the seventh month and there's no opening for the baby. Um, so you, your water breaks and you can try to push, but you can't have a natural childbirth, which they told me that would be, if it's marginal, there's a possibility I can have a natural childbirth. Mine was practically complete. So I knew I was going to have a C-section. The problem was that I have a problem where if someone cuts me, it's hard for me to clot back up which can actually make me bleed out. And knowing that I kind of, I hate to admit, you know, I, I told a lot, I told a few, a select a few of what the situation was. My husband didn't want me to go through the pregnancy because he was worried. You know, he's like, listen, I'd rather you be here. Maybe we can adopt. I was adamant. I'm like, no, I'm going to have my son and whatever happens, happens. You know, I, I'm not religious. I just believe that if it's meant to be, whatever that's meant to be for you in life is probably already written. Or you are in the process of writing it. And thankfully, I have my you know, my nine-year-old, you know, um, and I'm, I feel blessed by that. And so you had a rough road to have him, and he's he's nine now. So time is just flying by. Yes. Um, and you have recently discovered that he has diabetes. Yes. This is a heavy diagnosis at that age. So how are you all handling this as a family, and how are you helping him gain strength and, and acceptance? Oh, man. Um, he was diagnosed, oh, I want to say almost, it'll be two years, July 3rd. Um, and that's literally a month away from his birthday. So August baby. Um, we found out, um, strangely enough, um, by taking him to the doctor to get him into summer camp. Uh, and the, you know, in hindsight, all the signs were there every single sign and, uh, and all I kept thinking to myself is well you know because so many people hear so much about type 2 
But they what are, yeah, what, what are the signs? Yeah, the, the signs that, um, that he had was he had frequent urin- urination. Like my child has been prom- potty trained since he was like one and a half, two years old. He started having moments where he started, you know, urinating on himself, like in the middle of his sleep. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he was embarrassed. And you can tell, like, you know, at the time he's like six, seven. So I'm like, all right, you know, maybe he's just, you know, going through a stage, you know, he's a boy child. I don't know. Maybe he's lazy. You know, we, we just kind of looked at it as nothing. And then he kept saying, I'm thirsty. Every five minutes, he just kept saying, I'm thirsty. Then, um... We started noticing that um, if he was running around and he bruised himself, it was hard for him to heal from these. Like he had a um, a bruise on him on his leg for about six months. That had me a little concerned. He never complained about it being sore. It's just physically it looked terrible. And as you know, I, I kind of looked over it and I feel terrible in in one way, but the other way I have to tell myself not to beat myself up over it because I'm not a medical professional. There were times where we we saw some of these symptoms and we just kind of looked at it as, okay, well, you know, he's just growing up. It's nothing. And then we brought him in for a full checkup. They took a simple urinalysis and they said, well, um, they called, they called my, my husband's cell phone and they said, hey, um, we need you to bring your son back in. And I was like, oh, you know, well, what's going on? And they said, well, he's leaking sugar. We were like, what, what, you know, what does, what does that, that mean? mean? Yeah. You know, what does that mean? And they're like, well, um, we just have to, they didn't want to like scare us over the phone, but unfortunately we live in uh, Google technology, you know, um, we can live in the times of Google. So we looked it up and, you know, my husband's like, Hey, um, leaking sugar is usually referred to diabetes. And I'm like, what? Like he doesn't even eat junk food. You know, he doesn't eat that much. Like, you know, like we have to literally, like he's a picky eater. Um, he doesn't like chocolate. And I'm like, what kind of child are you? Like, you don't like chocolate like that? (laughs) You know, but, um, we bring him in the next day and we found out his number was at 403. The average healthy person who does not have diabetes should be in a range of 70 to 120. Wow. 403 is like walking around, um, asking for a coma. Wow. That's hard. Yeah, you know, and it was like deja vu because, you know, when my sister got diagnosed with lupus, she was the same age. She was about, I think she was like a year older than him. And I remember my mom crying on the phone because this was the part of the reason why I didn't leave New York. Um, I was going to go to Hampton University. That was my my college choice um, out of all things. I was like, I want to go to Hampton University. You know, I want to go to Virginia. I want to go out there. And I, I knew it was kind of slightly like a party school, but I also wanted to go to an HBCU. You know, I remember my mom saying that she keeps freaking out in the background. She keeps saying, am I going to die? You know, and when my son was diagnosed, I heard the same words come from him and it broke me. I was just like, this is like deja vu. You know, like I, I, I can't lose my child. You know, it, what are we supposed to do? And I literally was working um, as a line cook and I was doing night shifts, you know, so I, I didn't get home until two o'clock, three o'clock, sometimes four o'clock in the morning. And I was thinking, like, what kind of parent am I? You know, I, I, I saw this child going to the bathroom at weird hours and I never questioned it. You know, and the doctors had to remind me, it's not your fault. You know, I think a lot of people associate diabetes as something that has to be from poor dieting. In his case, his pancreas doesn't work. And somehow 
it's gone on for, it went on for seven years. And, and then that's when it decided, okay, now we can leave out of this dormant state and actually tell his, tell the body that, hey, I actually don't work. You know, and he takes insulin shots, uh, which is really hard. Psychologically, is really, really hard on him. My child is very, very outspoken, and I'm thankful for it. I'm scared of days when he's really quiet. It hurts. You know, it, uh, a part of you, a part of everyone, it's not, it doesn't just affect the person that has diabetes. It affects everyone as a unit. And those are times where I have to listen to my dad in my head. You know, he's not physically here, but in my mind, I can't forget the lessons of, regardless of how terrible the outcome or the, the things that's handed to you, you have to remain positive. You have to hold on to that strength that is not a, a idea of faking it till you make it. You have to find your happy somewhere. My child is here. That is my happy. My child is annoying. He's probably going to tell me, you know, this afternoon that, hey, you know, he did a couple of things in school that he shouldn't have, but he's here. Every morning that I wake up, like even in my own diagnosis, like I have sciatica, I have a, a back condition, which the last thing I should be doing is running, but I choose to do it because this is my happy. This is my form of happy. And I encourage people to find their truth and find their happiness, regardless of what other people may think of it, because you never know who you might inspire just by living in your own truth. I wish we could keep running together here for another 30 minutes, but you have to go pick your son up. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think what I'm going to do is send people to your website, Running Fat Chef, which is super awesome, and uh, check out all of your incredible photography. And we're going to have to have a take two sometime because we didn't even get to touch on the really big and important topics of, you know, body image and body okay. acceptance and, and, and even some more food stuff. Oh, but yes. what we what we did hit on were some really incredible life lessons and you know what I what I ask every person who comes on the show to leave us with is one final piece of advice, one nugget that can help people run their worlds in a bigger and better way. So what would yours be? Take a moment take I think that something like if we actually touch slightly on the body image thing. Um, take a moment even if it's only 1 minute a day and find five things to say to yourself that's positive. I think that we focus so much on the negative aspects, especially with the news and the media and everything that's, that society is trying to tell us every day. Find one minute out of your day and look at your reflection. To push yourself to look at your reflection and say five good things about yourself. And really believe it. Really understand it. And if negative thoughts come to mind question yourself why did it come there you know um and see if there's any way that you can work on it because it's not just a business model of making ways of of ways of turning your negatives into a positive i think that it's a lifelong lesson that we need to do there's always something that we can always improve on but it does not have to define us in such a negative aspect find what those negative thoughts are and work on them and make them work to your advantage. I love it. I absolutely agree. And it's, I couldn't find a better message for a Mother's Day weekend. So thank you, LaToya. You are an incredible mom. You're an entrepreneur. You're an athlete. You're a friend. 
you're doing really great things out there in the world for men and women. And I am just so grateful for you. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right. Have a great pickup today and have some patience with that little one. Oh, yes. Yes. I'll try not to strangle him as he asks me for icy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? Um, I really wish we had more time, but LaToya left us with such great homework that I'm sure you're all thinking about five things that you love about yourself right now. The real trick here, though, is to look at your reflection. Look at yourself and say those things. How cheesy does that feel? I mean, totally cheesy, but so powerful. And if your young kids see you do this, think about the impact it will have on them. Women and men, men, you are not excluded from cheesy empowerment messages about yourself. You need to do this too. And if you do it, tell me about it. Go over to the Run This World podcast group, Facebook group that we created and tell tell me how that felt. <laughs> I want to know because I'm going to do it. Um, I really hope you love this episode. So please do me a favor and get over and write a review about Run This World with Nicole DeBoom. Um, I find the easiest way to do this is to grab your phone, tap on the podcast icon, search Run This World with Nicole DeBoom, even if you already subscribe, because you need to research it and start from scratch. That's the only way I can get the reviews page up. Once you're on there, you just tap ratings and reviews, write a review. It's super simple. Just getting there is a little annoying. But it's really easy once you do it. All right, everyone. That's enough for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.